you know, it scares the shit out of them, y'all. When we actually see, you know, this this amazing like group of folks marching for Black Lives Matter, and there's a girl wearing the hijab, an Asian American, you know, standing there saying, "You will not, you know, kill my brother." You know, that is that's the incredible movement. I think, you know, at this time in our in our country, we got to continue building on that in, in so many ways. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hey, thank you to everyone at Haymarket Books for co-sponsoring and producing today's event. Thank you, of course, to everyone out there in the audience, whether you're watching live or seeing this on a recording. And of course, thank you so much to our panelists for taking time out of their uh, very busy schedules uh, to be with us. And actually, we, we got notice that uh, Representative Tlaib is actually in the middle of a vote, so we're hoping she'll she'll be joining us uh, shortly. My name is Scott Kureshige. I am a professor and chair in the Department of Comparative Race and Ethnic Studies at Texas Christian University. And as we'll discuss today, ethnic studies was born of struggle to redress the distortions and emissions that have warped our educational system, our understanding of history, and our public discourse. And we need to keep speaking truth to power. As the right-wing caricature of critical race theory, seeks to suppress anti-racist education and critical thinking. As a scholar and teacher, I've particularly focused on understanding the roots of cross-racial tensions and solidarity, which drew me to Detroit over 20 years ago, a move that changed my life as I subsequently lived in and near the city for 15 years. I'm co-author with Grace Lee Boggs of the Next American Revolution and president of the James and Grace Lee Boggs Foundation. And the foundation is a relatively new entity. This is actually our first public event. And it was created based on directives from Grace to manage the Boggs as a state and help carry forward their revolutionary legacy. And I would like to recognize our other foundation board members out there in the audience, Alice Jennings, Shay Howell, and Richard Feldman. Now, our starting point today is this pernicious wave of anti-Asian attacks. These have surged during the pandemic and prompted the Stop Asian Hate Movement. But of course, we know they didn't begin there. And we also know this phenomenon is part of a broader assault. The murders at the Atlanta spas were tied to rampant gun violence and a form of religious fundamentalism that breeds toxic masculinity shaped by colonialism and white supremacy. And they occurred in the aftermath of Asian Americans in Georgia coming out to vote in record numbers for both president and then the Senate runoffs, primarily through organizing and campaigning alongside African-Americans like Stacey Abrams. We see that the man who killed eight people, including six Asian women in the Atlanta spas, was able to buy a gun the same day he chose to carry out the murders. But GOP-controlled legislatures are making it impossible to register to vote on election day. Texas, where I am, just passed a law to allow handguns to be carried without a license or training, while the governor and legislature continue to push for racist and ableist voter suppression laws, plus assaults on the rights and dignity of transgender youth, yet will not fix the privatized, deregulated electricity grid whose failure caused hundreds of deaths last winter. Today also marks the 58th anniversary of the Walk to Freedom in Detroit. Dr. King gave an early version of his I Have a Dream speech that day. Four years later, he addressed 
central contradiction of our society begin the shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. When machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, materialism, and militarism are incapable of being conquered. Now, James Boggs had the foresight in the 60s to see how capitalism in the age of automation and high tech was creating a class of permanent outsiders anticipating the devastation of chocolate cities like Detroit, as well as the explosion and criminalization and mass incarceration in the U.S. more broadly. But he also saw that this system was predicated on condemning much of the world's population to misery and destroying the capacity of the planet to sustain life. Now, Grace did not live to see Trump become president, but she warned us about this slide we're seeing toward authoritarianism and fascism. When Reitman's billionaire developers and Wall Street tycoons joined forces to take over Detroit's municipal government by installing a corporate bankruptcy attorney to serve as the autocratic emergency manager in 2013. And this was her response. Quote, to resist and defeat the growing counter-revolution. A growing number of white people feel that, as they are becoming the minority, the country is no longer theirs. They are becoming increasingly desperate and dangerous. The situation reminds me of the 1930s when good Germans demoralized by their defeat in World War I, followed Hitler into the Holocaust. So that was her quote long before the Trump presidency. Scapegoating, division, hate-mongering, the targeting of minorities rather than holding those in power accountable, these were also the factors that caused the death of Vincent Chin on this very day in 1982. It's why Vincent Chin became and remains to this day a source of both inspiration for Asian American movement activism and solidarity in the fight against racist and xenophobic attacks. And we have a special poem composed just for this event and this day by Aurora Harris, who is an award-winning African-American Filipina activist, educator, poet, who was born in Detroit and grew up in a Catholic and Muslim family. Aurora is the author of Solid Five Black Moons, which won the 2012 Penn Oakland Josephine Miles Excellence in Literature Award. And I can personally add, people in Detroit movement building circles and those close to Jimmy and Grace know Aurora Harris as a fixture and a vital mentor. Um, let's cue up the poem that Aurora prepared specially for us today. Peace and blessings, everyone. I'm in Detroit, Michigan. Our love and our hearts are with all of you. This is a poem in memory of Vincent Chin. June 19th, 2021, the 39th anniversary of hate crime and death of Vincent Chin and Juneteenth where hate and fear towards any one Asian is another rot in the core of this nation, where the thud of baseball bats turned my heart into slow drum beats of Chinese funeral songs, where hate and fear towards any one Asian is another rot in the core of this nation. We remember our ancestors continue to fight for justice and our lives while becoming slow drum beats of Chinese funeral songs, protests, and marches, where daily news shows Asian attacks, pushed and slashed. We refuse to be silent, where we remember our ancestors continue to fight for justice and our lives. I am at Belle Isle, where Detroit River's waves remind me of hate, where daily news shows Asians attacked, pushed, and slashed with memories of 1982's white auto workers who murdered Vincent 
1965's white women spitting in my face. I am at Belle Isle, where Detroit's river's waves remind me of hate and Pan-Asian solidarity. 2002's first Detroit conference on Vincent's death, anti-Asian violence, calls for justice. 1982's white auto workers who murdered Vincent, their freedom to live with $3,000 fines. Our bodies, our lives are worth more than $3,000. Generations of hate and injustice. 2002's first Detroit conference on Vincent's death, anti-Asian violence, calls for justice. June 19th, 2021, the 39th anniversary of hate crime and death of Vincent Chin and Juneteenth. Our bodies, our lives are worth more than $3,000. Generations of hate and violence, where the thud of baseball bats turned my heart into slow drum beats of Chinese funeral songs. It's time to stand up, protect one another. Continue to resist the rot in the core of this nation. Thank you. Our Black, Filipina, Muslim sister, whose life and whose work is a reminder of the threads that connect us and are too often unseen. You know, as Grace said, channeling movements are more critical connections rather than critical mass. And so these opening comments and this poem are really meant to identify some of the people and events that bring us together today. The 40-year partnership of James and Grace Lee Boggs as a Black and Asian American couple in marriage and movement activism is often viewed as inspiring but exceptional. They understood, however, that we need to change the narrative of who we are and how we relate to each other, both in our local communities and as a nation. How can our diverse struggles bind us together to fight injustice and advance our common humanity? We are excited, very excited to bring together our distinguished panel of speakers who had a personal connection to Grace while she was with us and have been prominent leaders in the fields of politics, arts, education, and so many other arenas but I'm particularly hoping that they will share with us some more about how these cross-racial alliances, affiliations, connections have been an organic component of both their lives and their organizing activities. Because this experience, which is common to so many of us, is the growing reality for millions of people and it's not been sufficiently recognized. So uh, first we have Mr. Danny Glover, an award-winning actor, producer and humanitarian with a performance career that spans more than 30 years. Obviously, he doesn't need much of an introduction, but it's important to stress off screen. Danny Glover has gained respect for his wide reaching community activism and philanthropic efforts. Internationally, he has served as a goodwill ambassador for the UN development program, focusing on issues of poverty, disease and economic development in Africa, Latin America and the Caribbean and he currently serves as a UNICEF ambassador. Next, we have Maya Sutero Ng, who serves as a consultant to the Obama Foundation, working closely with their international team to develop programming in the Asia Pacific region. She is also the co-founder of Seeds of Peace and the Institute for Climate and Peace. Previously, she was the director of the Matsunaga Institute for Peace and Conflict Resolution 
at the University of Hawaii at Maui, is also the author of the children's book, Ladder to the Moon, and is writing a young adult novel I'm anxiously awaiting, entitled Yellowwood. And again, hopefully, shortly joining us from Congress uh, will be Representative Rashida Tlaib, who is a well-known progressive warrior and her, in her own words, quote, a mother working for justice for all. Rashida made history in 2008 by becoming the first Muslim woman to ever serve in the Michigan legislature. She is beloved by residents for the transformative constituent services she provides and for successfully fighting the billionaires and corporations that try to pollute her district. She is currently the Congresswoman for Michigan's 13th Congressional District, which includes the city of Detroit and many surrounding communities. So again, please join me in our panelists today. Um, and I'd like to just start by asking them a real personal question. Um, can you say something to us about your personal background and experience growing up with and learning about the struggles of people from different racial backgrounds, including yours, but people from different backgrounds in your own. Let's go to elders. Danny, why don't you start us off? We talked a lot about growing up in San Francisco, world liberation friend. You, you want me to go first? Yeah, please, please. Oh, oh, oh right. Um, um, well, I'm, I'm born and raised in San Francisco, California, um, at the end of World War II. I've lived uh, virtually my entire life in San Francisco. I grew up um, in, for the most part, of the Western Edition, or what is considered Haight-Ashbury, from the time I was 11 years old. Um, I, my, my parents were postal employees. My father and mother worked at the U.S. Post Office. They were very, very much involved, not only in NAACP and the uh, uh, Council of Negro Women, uh, but also very much involved in the, what we call um, the Postal Union at that time. And a great deal of the sense of solidarity among workers, I've learned from that experience uh, precariously in different ways um, by just listening to the conversations of my mother and father among their colleagues, you know. At that time, uh, there were a major influx of African-Americans who came to the post office my, father, my parents came to the post office in 1948, um, and, um, and there it, it, it provided the kind of foundation for a middle class. Uh, we li initially uh, lived in housing projects, federal housing projects, until I was 11 years old, until my parents bought a small, small town, small little house for um, the seven people lived in, and we had our own home. And and, and certainly uh, my mother would go on to buy another house for herself um, as she was employed um, and her dream home uh, for herself. And, and those are the, the things I, I, I grew up um, in, in, went to high school in San Francisco. And, and from the beginning, 
my my the high school that that I went to, George Washington High School, um, was uh, uh, had a population of Asian Americans, African Americans, white Americans, and and it was incredible. I remember. My guard on the football team uh, was Berwyn Lee. He was the right guard, and he was pretty tough. Gary Maris, 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 um, a Chinese-American. Gary Masuda was our quarterback, Japanese-American, was my quarterback. The irony is that that in, in when we were on strike in the fight, for an at school of ethnic studies, not just simply a black studies uh, program, not simply a Hispanic studies program, not simply an Asian study, but a school of ethnic studies alongside me on that picket line in 1968 was Berwyn Lee. We were there at San Francisco State together. And we, remember, we, 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 we've, we've attended all the, all the different, um, the various uh, celebrations for uh, the strike that we led and were part of in 1968. Um, so that's the that's the that's what I grew up in. Um, whether Italian Americans, Gary Gallardo, or whether it's others, uh, uh, Polish Americans, Roland Petusi, all these are the people that I grew up around. And there was a a, a we were all working class people. We all come from working class families in the midst of the civil rights, which particularly gave emphasis to the the aspirations of African-Americans, but not simply just African-Americans, all Americans making the country just and what it, its promise was. And so that that's what I I, 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 I grew up in, in, in that sense, in that sense where when uh, we we knew where the, we can find the best Chinese food, or we can knew where we can find the best soul food, um, and it 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 was a and, and in that sense there was this this relationship that 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 I saw between that that I knew as is something that you the expectations that you had or the the anticipations of. Of, of any kind of what is we, what we hear occurring at this moment moments would have been unacceptable for all of us what we see today in terms of the the Asian hate crime and the Asian hate uh, that's going on so um, in, in in that sense and, and throughout throughout that that struggle and I remember it was fascinating when I think about in, in terms of you know, the idealism that we have and the ideas that we had in 1968 and how we fight, we quickly came together in, in such, it was only, the strike was only, only achieved, the demands were only achieved by the coalition of Asian Americans, African Americans, Latinx Americans, and progressive whites. American. It was only we won that strike. We shut the camp, the campus down for five months. It's the longest strike in the history of any university in in the United States. So those are the, the memories and and the relationships we dealt dealt out as we call it the Third World Liberation Front <laughs> was our, our our emblem of the Third World Liberation Front. What lessons 
that certainly that we were able to carry on in, in our life beyond just the campus itself as well. Um, and uh, um, but that's that's what it, that, that that's San Francisco in a sense, you know, uh, unique uh, because of the uh, uh, certainly the respectful nature of 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 each community. Um, and and I and I and I say that, and and that was an important part of my acculturation, that that it began from the beginning, from elementary school and junior high school, middle school, all the way through high school, all the way through college. I came to work uh, for the, uh, the Office of Community Development and the Model Cities Program in 1971, where we worked. I worked in the Mission District. Uh, which is uh, a prime, prim, uh, the, the home primarily of Hispanic-speaking people, as I also worked in the uh, the Baby Hunters Point, which was uh, the the large uh, uh, African American community primarily in the southeast part of the city itself. So that those were the kind of uh, the way the the the. Um, and the uh, the way in which we uh, been um, um, the, the way in which we existed. I'm thinking about um, uh, Philip Kankatanga, whose play I did about the relationship between an African American and an Asian woman who had been uh, his, his wife. They had been married for some time. So I remember the kind of ways of all the different ways. Um, th- throughout my life, that we f- tried to find uh, the uh, the the common thread that throws that that we all are are, are blessed with, or, or or have the opportunity to build in the common relationships that we have. Um, um, that that's the beginning, a little bit beginning of the, the making of Danny Glover. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much. I mean. For that. And there's just so much, I think, for us to take away, including, you know, that importance of that third world liberation front at San Francisco State and to have the involvement of Native American people at the time when the Alcatraz occupation struggle was going on. It's just so vital. Um, so, so turning to my, obviously, a lot has been written about your family history, and I'm sure you can't even probably keep up with all that's been written. But we want to hear from you about your experience, you know, um, growing up um, and, you know, how that shaped who you are today. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Danny. Really uh, good to be here. Yes, I do have a lot of uh, personal family diversity across ethnicity, experience, culture, uh, place. We have Kenyan relatives from my brother's father's side of the family, a lot of Indonesian family from uh, my father. We have Irish kinfolk from our mother. Uh, My children are Chinese, um, so I'm keeping it going. But uh, definitely growing up in Indonesia and in Hawaii offered so many opportunities to experience the struggles and the successes and the strengths of people from many different racial backgrounds. Um, Both places I'd say did fairly well in cultivating a sense of connection and unity um, within diversity. In fact, that's Indonesia's motto, Bineka Tunggal Ika means unity and diversity. And Indonesia was and remains for the most part a very syncretic culture. Um, And so we had the, 
Sultan Haman Kubono the Ninth, who was a Muslim giving offerings to Nyaila Rokidul, the goddess of the South Seas. And if you go to the Islamic University of Indonesia, you can find the remains of a Hindu temple there that were discovered um, when excavating for a new library. And rather than shipping off the ruins, the Islamic University, its professors and uh, administrators decided to become stewards of this temple. And so you have pilgrims who are Hindu coming to the Islamic University. And that's Indonesia. That's the, the beautiful part of it. But there were also anti-Chinese riots. As I was growing up, I watched the same neighbors who were so kind to me and gave me fresh sugarcane from their field, scapegoat Chinese shop owners during troubled economic times and throw stones in the windows of those shops or pull out uh, Chinese uh, drivers when they're with their family, overturn trucks and set them on fire. And so there are complexities there, the same complexities that are present here in the United States, here in Hawaii, where I sit. Um, Hawaii has an enormous Asia Pacific diversity, of course, and has been very embracing in the face of massive health disparities during the pandemic. Um, but also Kofa migrants from Micronesia, as an example, have been wrongly blamed for what ails the communities here. And, um, and yet when Filipino and Micronesian communities suffered disproportionately during the pandemic, people did step up. So in both places, I feel like I became really aware of the human capacity to embrace and love broadly and intensely and imaginatively, but also the capacity to destroy, divide, and get trapped in narrow spaces. And, and this has certainly been my experience on the continental U.S. You know, this is a really complex country. And what we need to do is nourish that instinct for curiosity that will enable us to learn each other's stories and the courage to be upstanders, the conviction to bridge um, and bring others across the bridge. And um, yeah, thank you for the question. Thank you so much. Uh, and we're really um, excited to welcome Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib. Uh, perfect timing. We're just doing uh, discussions about um, the speaker's backgrounds. Um, and I know, obviously, you've been deeply connected to the Palestinian American community, to the diasporic Palestinian community, to the Muslim American community. But so much of your work has been shaped by uh, the civil rights movement in Detroit. So if you could just tell us more about how your upbringing has shaped the, the work that you do. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it just it's so incredibly important to know, like, yes, I'm Palestinian, but you know, growing up in the most beautiful blackest city in the country, if anything, has made me this just more, uh, I think, committed, um, you know, organizer, uh, justice seeker, uh, you know, and I always tell the story of my, my mom, uh, you know, came to this country, she was pregnant with me. Uh, when I started school, uh, she, uh, you know, she, I, she didn't speak any English. So I started school not speaking English and they put me in like bilingual program. But my mom at that time, they were like, you know, pushing a lot of the parents to come to these parent meetings. And I still remember as a child, it was always the black mothers that would tell Fatima, my mom, you know, raise your voice because she had this kind of accent and just like low voice. And she she would be so, um, uh, you know, incredibly uh, scared to speak up. But they'd be like, speak up. We need to hear you. And I just it is always stuck with me. Um, and, and so it's just a profound way that it was especially this, you know, uh, again, incredible uh, uh, city helped shape me of how I show up for my neighbors, uh, no matter kind of the background. And, you know, growing up in Southwest Detroit, where there's 20 different ethnicities, 
I mean, from all different backgrounds, Guatemala, Nicaragua, my dad grew up in Nicaragua, you know, half of his life. And so just all of those beautiful, um, I think, uh, lived experiences of just being there and present. And again, just truly understanding the importance of showing up for each other. Yeah. I, every corner I tell people is a reminder of the civil rights movement. And people wonder why I speak up against, you know, these forms of oppression, not only for Palestinians, for everyone. Uh, I always tell people, you know, I fight for water is a human right. I always say from Detroit to Gaza, uh, I say what happened in Flint is happening around the world. Uh, and so, you know, again, I think from that the, that lens uh, of being born to pal- these wonderful Palestinian parents in a black city where I was raised um, shaped me the, the person that I am now. So, and, and it really, it made me a better Muslim. It made me a better neighbor. It made me a better advocate in so many ways. Thank you so much. I mean, these are the rich histories that I think we really need to tell more about, right? And this, this when we get to uh, thinking about the really core point of ethnic studies is to bring out these truths, right? And as I was saying, these attacks on ethnic studies, on critical race, that we are really trying to create really a distorted view of, of who we are and erase our histories. Um, and so I want to turn to the fact that today is the 30th. 39th uh, anniversary of the day Vincent Chin died in Detroit. He was beaten on the 19th, but he died on the 23rd of June, 1982. And I know in different ways, you've all spoken about Vincent Chin, about anti-Asian violence. Danny, I saw you were in New York at a rally um, not too long ago. Um, Could you say a little bit more about the work you've done, why you've done this work, you know, um, and how it connects to your your broader, you know, purpose uh, and and the struggles that, that, that you think are most meaningful at this moment? Well, you know, I'm. I've always. If, if I don't become, if I'm not an activist, I don't become an actor. And I've always known that. I knew it was the reality of that. It was the struggle to end apartheid that brought me to acting in the first place. I found that even though I worked with the, the African Liberation Support Committee starting from the early 70s, um, the, uh, the anti-apartheid uh, 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 groups, uh, organizations, and also those for the liberation of the Portuguese colonies uh, still exist, Angola, Mozambique, and Guinea-Bissau. Even though I worked with that, I found that, that theater gave me another avenue uh, through expression. And if it had not been that foundation that that grew from my, my, my parents to watch them interact, the, the, the watching them find their 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 sense, their sense of human humanity through the work that they did. If it had not been for that, that laid the foundation for all that. So that when 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 I would go somewhere in an event, uh, and as I've many times in the Asian community, uh, as one event I went to in celebrating Chinese New Year's, which I've did for three straight years with a friend of mine, and and the first thing they would say, we don't know who this guy is right here, but we know who Jimmy Glover was. Jimmy Glover cha- trained me at the post office, and all all those kind of realities uh, were, were were part of who I saw this this very quiet man is being in in that. And I'd I'd always kind of like took whatever I took and learned. And he understood that 
clearly, and my mother understood clearly that in San Francisco State in 1968, it was expression of my 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 generation at the particular point in time. But he understood that as well, even though he may have been a fear fear of the violence that occurred occurred on the campus and everything else. So I I, I think in, in, in terms of finding finding some kind of way of finding the, the connection. And, and being being of service in the respective communities, sharing stories is in, incredibly of a profound way of connecting us together. Sharing sto- stories is that is, is what I've been able to do and continue to do. Uh, when I was asked by 1199, a union that I work with, uh, um, uh, 1199 in, in New York SCIU, a union that I work with, uh, with George Gresson asked to come down, come to fly to New York and be a part of a rally in Chinatown without a diff, without a question, because I know that the 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 those workers. That 1199 are the ones who are right on the and and uh, confronted with the issue. I know that they they are, but when we all we all uh, we all are touched by this, we are all confronted with this. This is our story. This is our moment to tell the truth. This is our moment to stand up for what is right and justice, and and we have that opportunity to do that and and decry what is happening in this, in not simply in the Asian community, but all those other communities have been marginalized as well, and 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 I think in in that sense and finding finding the kind of work and finding the kind of relationships with that. I remember my my, my Macbeth. Was not was not simply a, a, a Macbeth when I played Macbeth centuries ago. It feels like when I played Macbeth, there was there was the connection between a multiracial uh, community at that particular point. We did that at the LA Actors Theater. So, and and, and and I think that 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 has been the foundation, and that's only solidified through the work. Uh, that that I saw happening, and and through it was tough work. It was at, it was tough work doing the strike. We argued with each other, we disagreed with each other sometimes, but we came to some sort of consensus about that, and and that's that was one of the important lessons that that I think we we learned as school as 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 students of color in that in at that particular point in time and 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 like i said that that all those kind of w- ways in which i've been able to kind of use that platform uh that platform in my my life has been the center core and it makes me makes me proud to be that i do what i what i do uh and not simply successful in it but do what i do because i'm able to say i've been able to say what is the truth you know, what did Baldwin say? When we cannot tell ourselves the truth about our past, we become trapped in it. Boom. We become trapped. This is a country trapped in its own lies. It's historic lies from the beginning, from the outset, from the 1619 project on. That's what it is. And, and so racists always use, capitalism has always used, the system has always used race. As, as 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 a barrier, as as a as a weapon in order to to keep us from coming together and fight for the justice that we deserve, that we're entitled to. 
That's so important. And I think the one thing that really resonated is, you know, we oftentimes hear people say, do we have solidarity or do we have tension? And what you're pointing out is solidarity doesn't arise out of thin air. We're not born in solidarity with each other. It comes from us struggling to find those places exactly. unity and overcome exactly. these tensions. Exactly. Um, can we move to uh, Maya uh, and Rashida on this question? Yes. Would, would you like me to go, Rashida, who, who would you like to go first? Go ahead. All right. Well, I uh, I thank you for what you just said, Danny. I, I think that storytelling is really crucial. I um, I have uh, three nonprofits that I started. The first is Peace Studio, and it works with creatives and journalists of all kinds to shed light on peace and justice work around the world. And you see that uh, so many of the storytellers um, uh, aren't necessarily uh, born uh thinking that they are poets or artists or um, creatives, but they are people who are from the pulpit thinking about what is going to move um, others and building the beloved community or formerly incarcerated folks who are uh, telling the story of uh, their own uh, forgiveness or magnificence in the face of despair. And and um, one of the nonprofits is Seeds of Peace and it it's, uh, provides training for um, parents, educators, community members, and young people to implement community action plans through facilitated backward mapping and collaborative resource sharing and action. And the point here is that everyone has work that they can do. Everyone has a point of entry. We can all enter into the stream. And so you as an actor, um, making sure that you have um, that sense of uh a fierce obligation and connection to others um, is marvelous example of people making use of all of the resources and every part of um, their lives. Um, my third nonprofit is called the Institute for Climate and Peace, and it's a climate justice organization that works with frontline communities with a strength-based approach on um, education, collaboration, and policy transformation. And um, the point that I want to make through through that is that knowing that frontline communities have the solutions we need by virtue of having grappled with and worked through and struggled with those tensions. Conflict is so vital for helping us to understand where we need to infuse a situation with light, where we can make an impact, where we need to place our attentions and our commitments. And so with all of these nonprofits in my day job at the Matsunaga Institute and Obama Foundation, I'm afforded so many opportunities to challenge racial violence and build solidarity through young people, through young leaders, through work in the community, community source solutions, sustained dialogue, collaborative action. And a lot of my work is rooted in the work of first washing our eyes, as I call it, you know, to see one another, to see problems, to see ourselves in this moment in fresh new ways. This means we rewrite stories sometimes from the perspective of distant and different others. It means that we bring stories from shadows and margins um, to the light and to the center, knowing the past from many vantage points, leaning into our discomfort by reflecting. And this allows us to not only reframe our collective understanding of peace building as rigorous, hard, pragmatic work of every day, but it also reframes our sense of family and therefore our love and connection to one another. Thank you for the question. So, so Vincent Chen um, was killed in my district. And, um, and one of the things you should know is even in high school, I had learned about um, 
you know, that there's no hierarchy who's hated the most in our country. There's no, um, an understanding how it's so interconnected. So when the Jin, you know, was murdered, uh, 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 by these auto workers and and how so much of the 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 community was like shook by it and even as teachers were kind of talking about this uh and how it was interconnected with what they saw one of one of my teachers talked about how she watched her uncle be beaten um uh as a black man in the wrong neighborhood uh and and again I don't know if it's just my city, but I think I, I, I'm pretty sure it happens in other communities where um, people recognize that form of uh, racial violence, as Maya was talking about, uh, that it that it is 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 definitely in you know in all levels of our community. But you know, as a member of Congress, I need to help under, also explain that it is is definitely rooted in policy. What I mean by that is you can see that there's all these things that it's, it's against the law to do all these things, but the political will and courage within these agencies to take on this kind of racial violence, uh, is, 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 it's, it's just not there. And, and, and January 6th is definitely, uh, evidence of that, uh, where we continue to see this increase of let's do new laws, let's do this, let's do that, let's make make sure Asian American hate is is you know abolished and this is what we're gonna do. But even as they increase these budgets uh for diversity training, all this it doesn't it leads to not really truly being safe in our country because I think we're not getting to the root um causes and the root uh you know some of the uh roots of our our the ills of our country. Um, and, and, and how all of these elements are playing a role, not only members of Congress who speak up in a way that feeds into that rhetoric or the media who feeds into that rhetoric. And again, I think as a society, like we just haven't really truly combated that. So Vincent Chin is like 40 years ago, we're still now seeing increase of, of, um, hate towards our Asian brothers and sisters, but Iran campaign to take on hate. And I just, you know, I remember uh, as things were happening in Ferguson and, and things were happening in other communities, it was like some of the youth, I had to bring in a room and bring a black Muslim in our community in the room to have these folks understand like, this is what's happening and how it's connected to us as a people here and not waiting until we're targeted. And I say this because, you know, before I even got to Congress, I'm at a, a mosque in Flint And we were doing this like panel discussion, this beautiful young Muslim girl gets up and she's like, Sister Rashida, you know, why isn't anybody speaking up about uh, what this, you know, at that time, the forever impeached president was was running and and why isn't anybody saying anything? And this is before all of these things were happening. And that's when it was, you know, very clear because the room kind of like was waiting for me to respond. And I just looked at her. And again, it's because I grew up in a community that we just showed up for each other. I said, well, sister, what did you say when he said Mexicans were rapists? And you can almost hear a pin drop. And I said, that's the problem. Like we're not we're so divided because we're so disconnected in the pain, the pain that we're all is happening with this othering politics, this 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 increase, you know, um, uh, kind of race, uh, uh, racial, uh, again, very hateful rhetoric that's coming out of these different elements that are reaching 
you know, millions of people across our country in an instant. I don't care if it's the media, if it's a Congress member, it's this or that. And, um, you know, I think at that moment, everybody had that aha moment. But, you know, when I got here, it was the first Chinese American Congress member who had introduced the bill to repeal the ban, the Muslim ban. It was Judy Chu. Uh, who like proudly reintroduced it again, even though here we are as Muslims, we're like, well, we got you. Like we're here, we're standing with you. And it was a really incredible moment to stand behind, you know, Judy Chu as one of the first Muslim women and to demand that we repeal a very um, racist, you know, policy that was banning people solely based on their faith of being Muslim. And, you know, I always try to share that kind of story and that journey as I was sitting there listening to her. I, I honestly thought of Vincent Chu and I just, Chin, and I was just like thinking of Judy. And, and for me, I don't know why at that moment I got really emotional because I just thought, okay, Vincent Chen like died and was killed. And at that moment, it was a black teacher that taught me how it's so connected with the oppression of black folks in Detroit and in these neighborhoods. And then coming through this journey and now watching the first Chinese American woman say, you're not, you're not going to go after my Muslim neighbors. And I think those, you know, and again, that, that connection that we all have of the pain. And I, I'll tell you, the last thing is, you know, I always tell, like, especially the young people, I was like, you know, if you open up that curtain, the people behind that curtain are the same exact people coming after LGBTQ, Asian, Muslim, black folks, yeah. you know, it's the same people. And if you really turn up and look behind, they're all making some sort of money or, or gaining power from it. And so, um, again, I think we really, you know, it scares the shit out of them, y'all, when we actually see, you know, this this amazing, like, group of folks marching for Black Lives Matter, and there's a girl wearing the hijab, an Asian American, you know, standing there saying, you will not, you know, kill my brother. You know, that is, that's the incredible movement, I think, you know, at this time in our, in our country. We got to continue building on that in, in so many ways, but uh, I... I, you know, thinking of Vincent uh, to now and knowing the, you know, person that I helped kind of get elected in the state legislature was also the first Asian American woman, Stephanie Chang. And she, this is something that is always at the heart of why she fights against uh, hate in our country. Thank you so much. Yeah, I met Stephanie Chang when she was a freshman at the University of Michigan and took a class I taught on uh, civil rights and Asian American. Um, and so I have one more question for you all in, in that vein. And then, you know, feel free to ask each other questions and go back and forth. But I want to ask you one specific question since uh, today is June 23rd, as we pointed out, June 27th, Sunday will be the 106th birthday of Grace Lee Boggs, our ancestor. Um, Jimmy Boggs' birthday was May 28th. So we at the, the Boggs Foundation really think of this as a time of year to really emphasize you know, their legacy uh, and their memory. Um, and I know you either know them by reputation and all, all of you interact with Grace in person. Um, there's a movie on Netflix that I think Maya has seen. I don't know if everyone has seen it uh, called Barry. It actually ends with, so it starts with um, Maya's brother as a student at Columbia, sort of trapped between these two worlds, elite Columbia and then Harlem, black, white dominated worlds. Um, and it actually ends with him gaining a sense of his place in America uh, and in activism by meeting James and Grace Lee Boggs. 
Um, now, as far as I know, <laughs> that's a fictional story. It's a dramatized story you can watch on Netflix. But all of you have had some real-life encounters, at least with Grace. So I'd like to hear more about what you think the public should know um, and our brothers and sisters should know about the legacy of James and Grace Lee Boggs. I, I, if I can, because I have to go. <laughs> but I just, is just somebody, you know, not to try to take over. She's... You know, I always say uh, Grace belongs to all the whole world, but she's always going to be ours in Detroit. But I one of the things that she taught me and uh, it is it is something that actually keeps me uh, grounded is that the thing that folks need to know about Grace Lee Boggs um, and James and, and what they were trying to do is show people that, you know, like somebody like President Biden being there or who's in the White House or who's in Congress, that that it doesn't. It matters somewhat, but what they were trying to say when they said it's what's happening in the streets, that is what's going to lead to transformative change. She says that consciousness, she would talk about it all the time, y'all. And she would say to all of us young people, like, you know, what got us the Civil Rights Act, which continues to be watered down or some of the other things, is literally the the movement work in the streets. That's when we demanded it and that's when change happened. It didn't happen because of who was in the White House or who was in Congress. It happened because we in the community demanded it. So from the anti-war movement to the civil rights movement to you know the labor to be able to organize in, in the workplace, it didn't happen because somebody that was president was like, yo, this is great. We should do it. No, it was because of our consciousness and this woke, uh, you know, wokeness that happened of, of the speaking up and demanding it at all different levels of government. And so that is something I continue to truly believe in because I'm here and people are like, well, it's, you know, President Biden's there. It's, we're going to all be for It's like, no, he's not the destination, y'all. <laughs> he may be a, one of the doors that we have to get to, but understand this, we're not going to be liberated in our country from these racist and, and violent attacks, maybe through uh, direct, you know, state funded violence or through different kinds of policies. And behind the policies, you will see uh, it's denying us access to housing and water and all these things, which is to me a form of violence. But I, I people need to know that about Grace Lee and, and James, that they they really truly believed in it. And, and it was something that I think through their work over the years, I, I have to believe it's because that's what they understood happened. It wasn't again um, because of election day, right? Only that everything that we do is always year round and it's the work we do in our communities that delivers the transformative, meaningful change that we need in our, in our neighborhoods. And I'm so sorry I have to go, y'all. All right, then. Thank you. It's nice to Dan. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Aloha. Wow. I've, I've, um, you know, I can always think about the whole idea of, of, of struggle. Uh, continually, it's it more, more the same. That a wonderful congresswoman talks about, and I, I've, I've, I've liked to, I've, I've enjoyed the the kind of collaborations that she, he, that Grace and Jimmy had with 
with with various from Ozzy Davis, who was who I, I always thought my career was more like Ozzy Davis. I felt like more like Ozzy Davis than anybody else because I I sit up here and wondering and Ruby D, um, and um, I, I just couldn't write the wonderful plays that he often wrote and everything else. But I always kind of if there was anybody to pick for me. And the, the fact that they 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 had these ongoing discourse, this ongoing discourse about ways in which we can actively be engaged, you know, as an artist, in, in the sense, as, as we say, the old child relationship, may we all live our lives artistically. But to be able to be around someone, and the first thing she would say, what are you reading? <laughs> and she'd hand me, she'd pick a book out there, and I had to read it, you know. Um, and 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 it was it was that, that experience. I didn't get a chance to 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 um, to meet James, you know, um, he, he had made his own he's made his transition by then. But I remember the moment that I met um, in, met uh, Grace Lee at a conference uh, in in at, at a conference in in Santa Cruz at the Santa Cruz a gathering in Santa Cruz that that was put together by activists and, and, and meeting her and then coming to, uh, I think coming to Detroit and spending time in Detroit, um, and, and being around her was such a, a, a extraordinary opportunity for me as, as, as a citizen, as a citizen, always believing the foundation of activism as a citizen. I mean, it's, it's like my third grade teacher, Ms. Lumber, who would come from Beaumont, Texas to teach us, uh, teach us uh, kids who lived in the project and everything. I said, I'm not simply, essentially just talking about, simply just talking about making good students. I'm talking about making good citizens. That was 1954. And that 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 those are the kind of moments that have shaped shaped my life, you know. And even even when there there were, you, you didn't know. I found find myself out in San Francisco State in in 1966, and at that particular moment, being find, finding myself connecting with artists and connecting with students who had been engaged in the movements that I to students that I idolized who were engaged in SNCC or in CORE in Mississippi and Alabama. And those were my my generational heroes and everything else. And to find someone who who I can sit down and and be intimidated by too as well. Because <laughs> she would she would ask you the question that you had to find an answer. You almost had to prepare yourself to find an answer to what you've been doing. I don't care if it's Benson Harding. He probably felt the same kind of way of just just being around her and then and had to, to, to say, what you said, basically, what are you doing? What are you doing? What have you been doing? What are you doing? Thank you. Thank you. I'll jump in. Yeah, uh, for for me, um, Vincent Chin and the and and Grace Lee, um, they remind 
us, I think, that we have to define peace very broadly and not simply as harmony or personal peace or the work of governments or diplomats, um, but really the work of all of us um, uh, to make shifts in mindset and community. You know, all of us, again, can, can impact human rights and social justice, economic justice. Um, we can perhaps reform the judicial system, um, the carceral system. Uh, so we have to be concerned um, with all of our potential opportunities um, and then lean into our discomfort and bravely step in, you know, and we also have to be concerned. They remind us with memory and storytelling so that the trauma of stories like Vincent Chin's can be used for post-traumatic growth and mm -hmm. have to speak up like, Vincent's mother Lily did after Vincent's killers didn't spend time in jail and her heart was breaking, but she found the strength to speak to thousands of people, community gatherings and rallies and demonstrations. Um, and we have to speak with, you know, lots of love, I think, not just about our abstract understanding of equality, inclusion, acceptance, fairness, but also what all that looks like. You know, I was really honored to meet Grace Lee Boggs because of you, Scott. Um, and, you know, I embraced her and her embrace was nurturing, but it was also very powerful. You could feel the strength of her conviction, even though she was quite elderly. Um, obviously, that's um, the thing, that unnameable thing that allowed her to always listen to her conscience and conscience and seeking structural and sustainable change through multiple channels. And this idea of making revolution sustainable, um, nourishing her community through writing, organizing, movement building, you know, that helps us all to think about um, the things that we can do and the power of partnership and the power we each have to inspire and educate one another um, to start podcasts or vlogs or blogs or self-publish. You know, as an educator, I love that there are so many ways we can raise our voices. I love also that Grace Lee Boggs School is there and created with her, you know, vision and legacy in mind to provide early and frequent exposure to issues of, in of inequality, but also solutionary pathways so that we can, you know, raise generations of conscious citizens to build, um, as a world that can rectify past wrongs, but also work with everyone to um, to build a, a really imaginative future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and and one other thing, Scott, Scott, she she made me feel, but when I get ninety, uh, hopefully I get to that. It's cool to be ninety. Yes. <laughs> it's all right to be ninety. If I'm, if I'm moving around and and and, and it's as as thoughtful as and engaged at ninety, I can't. I I am I'm, I'm I'm looking forward to being ninety. <laughs> well, I think that's that's an important point, right? Under capitalism, we think of productivity as who is able-bodied, you know, yeah. and who is young and vibrant and and physical, and you know. The only way human civilization has survived so many generations is because of respect for elders and the wisdom they bring, right? And that continuity and that tradition. I, I'll just jump in with one story that I have because I want to talk about how these things connect. Um, so uh, in 2002, um, as, as Aurora pointed out in the poem, we organized the 20th year remembrance. And hard to believe we're almost at the 20th anniversary of the 20th year remembrance for Vincent Chin's um, murder. Um, but shortly before that, um, Lily Chin, Vincent's mother, um, passed away. It was 
it was really just like a, a couple weeks uh, before we planned that uh, event. <laughs> and uh, I, I, it was in the newspaper, obviously. And it wasn't actually a very big fu- uh, funeral, but it was open to the public. So I asked Grace if she wanted to go. And she said, yes, I think we should go to this. And it was, that was part of her respect for elders and recognizing this history. Um, and she said to me, you know, um, Chinese people always wear white at funerals. <laughs> and I was thinking, yeah, but this is, you know, a funeral in the Detroit area. <laughs> Probably won't be. So we got there and, and nobody was, you know, dressed in white. They were dressed in suits like I'm wearing now. Um, but before we went, I ended up wearing a suit. But Grace said, you need to have this white suit for this funeral. And it wasn't just any white suit. It was the Nkrumah jacket that Nkrumah himself <laughs> so think about this connection. I met Lily Chin's funeral to honor her struggle, you know, and the Asian American movement struggle, the anti, you know, racist violence struggle with Grace Lee Boggs, who's given me a jacket that Kwame Nkrumah gave Jimmy Boggs, you know, uh, in Africa because uh, they had met because of the influence of CLR James in the, the Pan-Africanist movement, right? I mean, these are so many of the connections that I think are, are always there. Yeah, she, then also the, the, the story she tells when, when she met Nkrumah said, we could change the world. She and Nkrumah, he, she, she, he was fascinated so if, by it. If she had married him, right. If right, she had married him, we could change the world. <laughs> he, always had a, he always had a special eye on her throughout the years. This is all in Grace's autobiography, Living for Change. And just to say, this is the type of history, you know, we are yeah. trying to present as the Boggs Foundation. That jacket is in my closet right here, but it doesn't belong there. <laughs> we are looking for support, uh, you know, from people that want to see how we can properly preserve this history of Jimmy and Grace, but also make it accessible to the public. So please exactly. stay tuned um, for those um, announcements from the Boggs Foundation. Um, and here's a question coming from, from the audience over the chat. So building on Representative Tlaib's point about struggles in the street being the key thing in deciding which our, uh, deciding which of our causes succeed, how do we strike a balance between that activism, so that grassroots level activism, where it doesn't matter if you're a citizen or a non-citizen, how much money you have, everybody can you know, be a full participant in those grassroots struggles versus the type of electoral um, campaigns, elections, um, victories that we're seeking both through legislation you know, um, and, 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 and in terms of who, who serves us in office. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, it's always been a struggle uh, between those two elements. You know, you you, you look at at at, at Thurgood Marshall and and his real disdain to some extent of the work that Martin Luther King was doing. When I say disdain, maybe it's not the right word, but he he minimized that active. He thought that it should take place within the courtroom, within a prescribed uh, manner within the courtroom. Of course, you can argue about Brown versus Board of Education, uh, which which had been uh, an an element um, of the 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 identity of the of the Howard Law School. There's a special floor in Howard's Law School where every graduate after 1896, Plessy versus Ferguson, their main objective was to overturn Brown versus I mean, uh, 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 which come Ferguson, the, the 19, uh, 1896 uh, 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 action, act, which came about 
almost 60 years later with Brown versus the Board of Education. So they, 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 there's always this tension between what happens in the courtroom and the legal battles. At the same time, I think they both complement each other. They're both, they're both essential to struggle and they're both essential to change. And I think each of them radicalizes the other as well. I think that it's important to have that and and the that that I don't even want to call it a balance, you know, because outside outside people are going to be marching, people are going to be protesting, and people are going to be demanding outside, and that pushes pushes another lever lever within the in in the of the whole circumference of of struggle itself. Go ahead, Maya. I'm sure you must uh, have a lot of experiences uh, with people who are part of the political system. And obviously, you do a lot of work with grassroots communities and youth and elders. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone has their role. And and I actually um, see my role as leading from behind, beneath the side. And uh, through through education, I would never um, step into um, uh, trying to run for office. Um, I'm so glad that there are um, people like um, Rashida Tlaib and Barack Obama who, who have and, and who are good at it. Um, that's never going to be my path. So I really think that it, it's every, we have to flood um, the, the system and our communities and um, all of these issues with as much um, influence and energy as we can and who, with whatever we have again, you know, so whether that's the power of media, personal conversation, financing, sponsorship, promotion, the, the, the production of culturally um, activist and, and challenging progressive programming that, you know, shifts narratives, um, strength-based storytelling that, you know, that reflects the value and quality of um, frontline folks and, and people of color, institutional change or resource building. There's so many ways to think about um, uh, this work uh, and to create uh, community on the other side of uh, of hate and bigotry and and violence. And so um, whether you're working for NGOs or government, you're impacting policy, I think if everyone is just poised to take specific, demonstrable, brave action and to think uh, in really complex ways rather than simplistic ways about real change and how it, it requires uh, in addressing infrastructure and mindset and um, education and um, and and we need to um, kind of uh, advance this work over uh, the course of many years in a sustained way rather than thinking that you know one um, uh, policy victory is going to make a difference or <laughs> or that one movement is going to be able to solve the problems. We have to be intersectional and do what you, you are uh, doing with this event, helping us to think about how these face spaces can inform one another. I wonder if we could say a little bit more about this, because, you know, I think we have a clear sense of the dynamics that, you know, get highlighted in elections. You want to have charismatic candidates who are good speakers. They need to be able to raise money. You know, you have consultants, campaign managers. You obviously tend to have to belong to one of the major parties. 
Although, of course, with Rashida Talib's work, with the squad, with India Walton, who just won this stunning victory in, in Buffalo uh, as a black woman, socialist and, and grassroots activist, there are uh, uh, there are certainly counter trends to that. Um, but obviously, uh, we see from for grassroots organizing to succeed for people, whether they're in the field of education or art or, or community building, you can't rely simply on charisma and money, right? And, and, and attention and, and even media, right? So what, what can you convey, I think, to the people out there who are themselves perhaps, you know, getting into organizing or struggling with the challenges of organizing? What are the most important values, lessons that, that are needed for success when we're thinking about grassroots organizing and participatory democracy, people's movements? Go ahead, Maya. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that um, it is important to have voices who are charismatic to use their platforms to shine a light on the important work, the legacy, the, the opportunities. So um, people like Danny Glover, for instance, who are willing to uh, really give a portion of their time, live resources to uh, advance this work. Uh, but I do think that there are many, as you point out, who, who don't necessarily have that platform. Um, but I think that what is needed in terms of um, movement building is really um, thinking about um, how to um, build collaborative thought partnerships, how to in engage um, all of the current technologies um, that we have. I mean, I just started a podcast called Brave Through, which, you know, sheds light on all of uh, the work of people who are addressing seemingly intractable problems um, really imaginatively. And you realize like there's so many issues like houselessness or, or like safety and policing that you know, people have just been doing things the way that they have always been done. And it is hard. It, it takes more than uh, sometimes, um, you know, a, a, a curriculum or, a, again, a single voice to convince people. They need to really make, uh, be able to see these things uh, in action, made manifest. And so I think for movement building, we do need uh, a wide array of storytellers. We need to feel the, the texture, the sound, hear the sounds, you know, really um, be able to visualize the harvest um, and the, the bounty of, uh, of, of greater justice. Uh, we need to also ensure that we are um, talking to one another whether it is around environment and climate justice or, or capitalism and about how we can not only hold others accountable uh, to do the right thing, but also make difficult personal choices that will invariably require a sacrifice, right? And we sometimes are so comfortable. And so in order to engage in movement building, I think we need to help people to see that it is okay uh, to be uncomfortable, to lean into your discomfort, uh, that there is great uh, power in feeling uh our capacity to, <laughs> to have 
uh, less and do more and um, to put ourselves in a place of conflict and then transform it. Once you do that a time or two and practice deep listening, uh, not only to your own conscience, but, but to a wide array of communities, listening that is about understanding the truth between words and behind words, then I think we can, we can have a braver community and, uh, and movements can, um, can solidify. Well, if you could just follow up, I know, you know, being based in Hawaii, there's such a, a vibrant um, Hawaiian Renaissance and indigenous resurgence movement. What are the most important lessons you have learned from the Kanaka Maoli people and movement? I'm so grateful to um, the Hawaiian people. Kanaka Maoli is, um, um, have really, as you point out, through Mauna Kea and through myriad other um, efforts here to uh, revive language, place-based and culturally responsive education, and um, to find uh, community source solutions uh, and build circular economies during the pandemic. You know, they have taught us so much about um, how we can again live uh, with an acknowledgement and a reverence for the past and tradition. Indigenous wisdom can really help us to move forward into the future with a sense of innovation. I think of it as sort of navigational leadership or wayfinding leadership that. Um, allows us to move through the storms of this time uh, with a sense of courage, uh, having a strong sense of, of purpose and place, but also, again, listening really carefully. As navigators, you have to listen to the uh, the wind, to the water, uh, to the uh, animals beneath the surface. You have to be able to tie your va'a, your canoe, um, to those um, beside you sometimes to help uh, carry together. You have to think about how you're going to find new routes, uh, get through the doldrums, right? And so um, that sense of resilience um, that is present here in the Kanaka community, um, but also that, you know, the sense of... Um, uh, possibility that comes from that strength-based approach. When we see um, there's a Antipua Burgess who does uh, community work to build the beloved community, to use MLK's words, and, and she does ask for three stories. Tell us the story of your name and how you came to be. Tell us the story of your community and tell us the story of your gift. This notion that you know the Hawaiian uh, people and culture have so much to gift the rest of the world is something that I think is being fully felt here. And um, there are one thing that I would say, just in closing, is that I spent some time in Mauna Kea, which is one of the movements that has gained traction, you know, all around the world and has connected with other indigenous communities elsewhere. And it's funny because I, although there is there is a feeling of tension and uncertainty and conflict um, that is hard to transform when away from there, when you spend time on the Mauna you, and you see how folks have set up a school there, how there is uh, food and aid to nurture each other, how they use oli, chants uh, and community and how children as they're passing by on the uh buses are making the Mauna sign. There's such love and tenderness. And so this sort of radical love or aloha is something that I feel is um, some 
great something grace would have been proud of i feel like uh, would have been part of her revolutionary spirit and is something that can be i think shared with so many around the world Thank you. Danny, you want to jump in on this? Yeah. I, I know. I, I can just listen to Maya talk. So I can, because there's, there's so much uh, that that resonates and so much that, that when she speaks and talks of the, and intertwines culture and life and listening, um, it, it, um, it's, it's, it's quite, I, I mean, it's quite fantastic, amazing, you know, and that, and that just uh, from from um, and, and and from there, thinking about other ways in which I'm, and even at at at, uh, at this age can listen more, and probably in some ways, I've I've used utilized those, those things, those ways instinctively in my life. Um, um, there are, um, um, you know, I've, I've, I've worked with the, I, I did a film, um, I produced a film and starred in a film uh, called Freedom Song about SNCC workers and student and, and co-workers in Mississippi in 1960. And I, began working with the algebra project uh, and and looking at math literacy as as a way math and and education as a different form of citizenship too the relationship between citizenship and and and, and education you know I, I I knew in in just that my my grandparents who were born at the turn at the end of the the 19th century, and who I became very close to, understood that the future belonged to her daughter and her and, and her siblings, um, and send them all to school. They didn't pick cotton in September; they went to school in September, and 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 that was a reference point for me in understanding how how one generation prepares the next generation for struggle. Uh, and and decide, make a definitive decision, make a, a decision that my my kids and not children are not going to have the same experience, and and trans and they'll be able to trans their life on a much in a much in a different way as citizens. So I always thought about education as the as the pathway to citizenship and the pathway to activism as well. And, and, and so my, my mother became that. My father became that active in the labor unions, active in their work in, in, in organizations in civil society as well. So those are the kind of ways that, that, I, that I think about that. And certainly the ways in which we, we try to bring peace, as King said, peace is not simply the absence of hostility, but the presence of justice. And so how do we how do we find ways of bringing peace? How do we find our ways and um, and, and, and finding examples that we're able to nurture and and, and 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 use and and see and see our own self within that ourselves individually and collectively and in and, and through those 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 engagements. Um, I've I've uh, um, 
And the, 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 I, I may have missed the point of the question, but certainly just to think about us, the ways in which Maya just spoke so eloquently of the ways in which of learning self, of, of finding of finding community and finding um, what, what King would often say, love as well. And love being love being the highest level uh, in that. Um, I, I remember being I, I remember being at, at Grace at, at, at Grace's home, and we had, we're having a meeting. And a young fourth fourth grade teacher uh, says the the first question he asked his his students at the beginning of the semester the year is what does it mean to be a human being. And 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 it, and and certainly it's the first question in philosophy, what does it mean to be a human being? And the second question is, how do we know? And I do the blink of love and transforming and transform transformation, the act of transformation and activism is 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 a, is is to be is is the is the 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 the, the glue to that as well. Well, I could of course sit around and talk story with all of you all night, um, but sadly we are actually coming to the end of our time. So I, there's a few more questions for the audience. So I'm going to say maybe we can do like really lightning round answers, 15 second answers. Um, so the first question is: There's this, you know, national. Uh, attack now on critical race theory. Does, what does it mean? How should we respond? 15 seconds? <laughs> we, I mean, there are 17 states that are proposing legislation not to, to, to teach, not to allow the 1619 Project taught in school. 17 states, we have to do everything. But we see, this is, this is the fact with, with, with we, we have so many avenues of telling the truth. So many ways of telling the truth, of finding the truth, and so we must we must do everything else to fight that. We must organize to fight that. We must continue to beat down the wall to tell the truth. <laughs> okay, uh, here's another question. Uh, what advice do you think Grace Lee Boggs would give to young activists? I actually pulled up a quote when we were talking about the role of grassroots movement. Builders. Grace said, uh, a movement begins with momentum when people begin exploring visionary answers to the questions being asked at the grassroots and engage in practical activities which can be replicated without huge bureaucracies. And this is a great quote. In the early stages of a movement, the visionary answers being explored usually strike most people as too radical or too impractical. I wonder mean, how many times Rashida Tlaib was called too radical and practical when, when she started out saying she would run for office. If they don't seem too radical or too impractical, they are probably not profound enough to build a movement. Mm-hmm. One lesson. Any others you want to share from, from, from Grace? I, I, I don't have anything to add to that. I, I remember the, the, the Black Panther Party 10 pro- program. <laughs> Employment, housing, education, food, uh, ju- you know, all of the things, and p- community control of police. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> it was pretty <laughs> radical, didn't it? <laughs> I would just well, add this last one to Maya. How? Okay, go ahead. Oh, I just wanted to add that I feel like Grace um, would uh, encourage folks to do intergenerational work. Those intergenerational duets are sometimes missing because young people, they're so amazing. They are um, uh, 
brave. They are uh, skilled. Um, they have a great vision and voice and creativity, and they know how to use technology. Sometimes they're missing context. And so some of those stories, you know, you know, young folks and older folks can really help each other and inform one another in ways that are profound. And um, I'd love to see more of that. Boom. Yeah. Okay. And there's one last question I think we can get to. Um, how do we get our wealthy Asian American brothers and sisters? And really, I think this is more broadly question. How do you deal with people with privilege in general, right? As they begin their journey to greater consciousness and understanding of our rich history of solidarity um, before they do harm with the, with the privileges that they can wield and the power they can wield. I have to say that sometimes I think that it's just a matter of asking. I, I really believe that, you know, helping people to understand that they have power and that power comes from much more than resources or, or wealth that they will utilize, that they in doing service will become happier, you know, be inviting them really uh, to think differently about their privilege, um, you know, creating a sense of safety around it, you know, and helping them to understand that you know, what they can do is not simply hand off resources for their children uh, to have, you know, educational opportunity, but also for their children to have, you know, emotional and mental freedom and, um, um, you know, opportunities for uh, for justice that they can contribute uh, to the movement and to a future, and you know, and and kind of helping you know some, uh, gently. And I think that there has been uh, some movement for a targeted impact philanthropy or community based philanthropy that has helped people to also say, hey, you have ideas that we value too, along with your resources. So as we open up. Let, let's let's listen to our let's discuss let's have conversation you know sometimes rather than just asking for resources right so I mean I'm not sure um, that I know perfectly how to answer that question but I also think that not enough people have been asked um, to do with less and to do more with what they have you know uh, that that uh, I want to I want to think that. I feel that that me is me and, and certainly my life. I've been privileged, um, but privileged even before I became a, a, an actor. You know, when I went to work every day, worked in city government, but I, and and had the parents I have. But there there has to be somewhere where we we. We 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 move beyond. Um, if, if 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 the crisis that we're talking about is is climate uh, climate the climate crisis, climate change, climate uh, migration, all the things that are devastating that are happening around the world, then we have to do something drastically. We have uh, we have to do something that that goes beyond uh, uh, understanding, uh, uh, giving a, a, a plane some sort of minor role in it. We have to play play a major role in that. And if we consider all of the things that we do. Uh, as 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 a as a much and much larger frame of where of how we see ourselves 
um, not the, the, the toys and not simply the things that we have that we've benefited from and, and been gifted with or, or whatever. But beyond that, we have to, this life is so short, even 90 years or 100 years is so short. How do you begin to fill it with raking understanding what real change is, what real change is, how do we begin to change change by changing our own self and the values that we that 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 we're in that infuse with how do we begin to do that? And I don't know, Scott, you know, I I, I don't know Maya. Even it is it's if it's somewhere and, and somewhere that 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 conversation goes on constantly because be believing, believing like Maya believes, believing that you believe, believing like Grace and James believe, meant that it is. You get tired. You get you 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 you're you're fighting. It's nom- phenomenal that nearly a hundred years old that Grace was still fighting, and that still fighting, still thinking, and everything. I hope that that's what keeps me active 20 years from now when when I'm 95 years old you know it, it's kept me going from the time that that I'm here 75 years old so it's kept me going so what are the what are the things that 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 I can do in some sort of way and engage in that and they said that it begins with i think having a, a radical framework in which we think about that. It's not saying that we we if we've induced the most radical uh, the most radical uh, proposition, the most radical thing that has to be happening. Whatever it is about, what we desire, what we need, not what power is is is, is decided it wanted to give us or allow us to have, but what we need. And what we need. And it begins there and how we fight in the little ways in which we can we can move toward and feel as if that touching someone else in some sense and, and building something that you're building something and touching someone else. I'm all over the place, but I, I just want this. this I, I was so happy for this conversation and so happy to hear, you know, the voices of, of the congresswoman. So often to hear, hear all the voices that I hear. Well, I, I really think that's a fitting ending to honor, you know, the legacy of Vincent Chin, Jimmy and Grace Boggs, that there aren't easy answers. You're leaving us with challenges, right? And tasks um, and struggles that we have to take up. Um, so I just want to thank, thank it, it, you. It's going to be a struggle. It's going to be. <laughs> it's, it, you know, that's the one thing about it. And then you say, for the bit when you get there, when you get in that moment, when you when you there, and you and you say, as Ozzy would say, whatever whatever it was, he said, I'm supposed to be here at this moment because this moment needs me in this moment. And, and no, if, I'm so, if you that's want, why I'm here. And as I'm here, this moment there. needs that. And where it is, where, wherever it is, I believe that that moment needs me. And it's in the service of justice and peace and love, then boom. Thank to you. be a lifelong you have to love the struggle itself. Thank you so much, Danny Glover. Thank you, Maya C. Thank you. Thank you, um, thank you to Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib. Thank you, John McDonald, working behind 
behind the scenes, the uh, run our video, books, um, and the James and Grace Lee Boggs Foundation. And thank you, all of us, uh, all of you out there that, that joined us today. Um, we really look forward to continuing this conversation. And we hope you will take this conversation, you know, to your classes, to your families, to your friends, to your organization. So thank you all. Um, good night. Thank you, Scott. Good night. Good night. Pleasure. Thank you, Mike. Pleasure. Scott, right on, baby. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.